0: Coming to you from Pasadena, California, I'm Colin Marshall. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with Sandra Cingolani, who's written many books, including Death Takes a Holiday, Aliens in America, If You Lived Here You'd Be Home by Now, A Year in Van Nuys, Mother on Fire, and now The Mad Woman in the Volvo: My Year of Raging Hormones. Sandra, did you, do you see this book as taking a place in some existing field of menopause lit, if you like?
1: Well, yes, and, and it, that would be a distinction that no one would really want. <laughs> Um, you know, it's like being queen of the nerds or something like that. Um, but I do. I mean, I, I think that as I write in the book, and I wrote in my Atlantic piece, uh, the literature of menopause is is the saddest, most awful, most medical, most full of all kinds of vaginal creams that you mm. want to never have heard about. And the advice to women in menopause is always, you know, just eat more flax and hydrate and cut out alcohol, caffeine. And sugar seems so unhelpful. It's totally, thank you. It's totally unhelpful and totally medical in a way that I think that even how people view women, women, and especially in this particular time of the change, are going through major cathartic, I want to say phonic, that great, you know, that, that great word. Um, it's a
0: Lovecraftian word. Yes.
1: Or, or Camille Paglia esque yes. word of like conic mm. And, and they're huge, giant changes that you can't really address by drinking eight glasses of water a day. <laughs> they're quite giant. So, and, and I think in this field of all these diet books and how to do sit ups and, and eating kale books, there's one, Christian Northrup, The Wisdom of Menopause, as I like to say, is, I think it's the gravity's rainbow or infinite jest of menopause literature, and at least that it's like 10 times the volume
0: of any of these other books. And but Even I know that lady's name somehow. You mentioned her in the book, and yes. I was like, why do I know the name of this menopause book lady?
1: It's been on daytime television somewhere in an elevator at an airport. You, She is in your consciousness. And, <laughs> Colin. Um, and, but it, it's almost 700 pages, so just getting through it is is a chore for people with short attention span, which would be middle-aged women. So, um, so I like to think of this book as more... I, I think I never wanted to write a menopause book. I didn't want to to be the champion of menopause, but my Atlantic editor, um, uh, you know, Ben Schwartz said, you know, was after me to write this piece for years and years because it's a giant phenomenon. By 2015, one in every two American women will be menopausal. The uh, demographic group of ages 45 to 60 is America's largest demographic group. It's 50 million women. So it's so sort it, of
0: a baby boom knock on effect. Here.
1: Exactly, exactly. It's, it's a giant change and mm. it's a very intense thing these women are going through. And it could be even an evolutionary change mm. um, that, you know, used to think think of menopause as being kind of the end of life, the change, the tailing off, and that's when the hormones go nuts and women change. But because we live to almost 90 now, and we're only fertile for about 25 years or so in the middle, that's actually the the minimum of our life is spent in fertility. It's actually, fertility is the change, and at menopause, our hormonal levels go back to what they were with preteen girls. So as I like to say, we become the same sort of, we don't care about boys or grooming or (laughs) rigor or culture. And we don't have that, that estrogen and oxytocin cloud that makes us want to set the table for 12 people and fold their napkins and do their laundry. It's (laughs) like you do your frickin' laundry, but yourself. So we kind of become more normalized and kind of reenter the species. And I think that's going to be an interesting evolutionary change as we go forward to have these women running around for another 40 years, basically almost half their lives are ahead of them, Mm. but they are not under a fertility cloud.
0: It's the, the central question of what do we consider a normal woman, one who's fertile or one who isn't. And if the majority of their lifetime is now infertile, the question gets answered for you, doesn't it?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. It's a very interesting shift that, you know, that maybe men have to be some more of the caregivers and nurturers. It's a particular problem that I touch on my book. It's not a problem, but my dad is 93, so you have our elders who are living ever so much longer and need ever so much care, and it's said the statistic of the average caregiver of elders is like a 50-year-old woman, which is one in menopause, arguably. And that's the exact same age. Were in ancient tribes. These women of this age would go into a cave to be alone. Mm-hmm. And now we're at, like, I'm 52. I'm in the sandwich generation. I have a teen and tween girl, 93-year-old mm-hmm. dad. These women are having to caregive at a four times, you know, higher level than they ever did before
0: mm-hmm. when they're going through menopause. Mm-hmm. Pretty big problem. Now, listeners will also know you from the radio show, The Lowdown on Science. And so you must have a bit of a a bit of a slant toward the scientific side of menopause. You know, you, t- you talk about how there's a lot of unhelpful advice and it's too technical, but at the same time, it's got to fascinate you a bit as well what's actually going on scientifically.
1: Yes, it, it really is. And I think the horma, whenever you read about this section in the book, it becomes very technical and there are a lot of diagrams that start to happen. And the hormones are fluctuating because you're making less estrogen that's getting balanced by progesterone in the second part of the month so that your fertile- as your fertility is waning, your hormone dance is going really out. of whack. Although when you read what Hormone, um, changes women usually go through in a month and you go, that's normal. That doesn't sound normal at all. And if you've ever experienced a menstrual cycle, it doesn't feel like you're normal at all. So in this case, but the hormones are really bouncing back and forth. They're spiking and dropping at unbelievable levels, but those hormones are also tied to particular parts of the brain, like the hippocampus and the amygdala that are, 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 you know, connected to rage, hunger, Mm. sex, Mm -hmm. drive memory. So really, it's like, and body fat and belly fat. So Mm -hmm. there's a bunch of um, hormones that trigger changes literally in the brain. Mm -hmm. And that you can, in this particular time, sometimes there's an experience of long repressed memories that come up from the past. Because, you know, evolutionarily, it's thought that women who are fertile and are making babies, it's not useful for these women to harbor grudges or to be angry or to remember injustices that were done against them. Mm -hmm. But as that fertility cloud starts to wear off, all this stuff may erupt from the past that's mm. triggered to brain and memory. And you can just feel like going. you're going nuts. You're suddenly remembering things intensely from a long period of time ago mm. that you went through. And the emotional wounds of the past are coming up. It's also said at this point of time, at this point of life, at about 50, for both men and women, it's said that all the buried past memories that you've had and hurts and grudges that you've repressed, now you start have to start to deal with them. Here we or, go. <laughs> yeah, Or parts of your Body are going to start to fall apart. Your oh. body can only go to age fifty and carry all this repressed stuff. Mm. The, your childhood hurts, your family dysfunction, and etc. Mm. And at fifty, if you don't start dealing with it, it's going to your your body is going to start to break down. Mm. When, uh, one other thing that is said in this particular time, based on and and I think that in this particular time of life, it's so mad midlife that you be you must believe everything, read everything take anything that makes sense to you. It's also said that at 40, you know, the kundalini begins to rise up the spine. Kundalini rising, and so it's going to open every chakra along the way that's blocked, mm. and hence you can have a forty-five-year-old person who's both having heart problems, stomach problems, job firing, and marriage falling apart all at the same time mm. because they're like storm. Yeah, it, exactly, because it's all getting activated at the same time. And mm. um but by the time you get to fifty, hopefully it'll be better. But there's a lot of stuff going on in midlife.
0: I feel like what a man gets taught about this kind of thing about women in general, a uh, once a month for a while they they are crazy, and then they 're crazy when that stops like and that 's the end of the detail essentially and the addendum is uh don 't bother trying to understand it in fact it 's actually it 's worse if you do try to understand it that doesn 't seem very helpful to teach men do you think about about all this about about all the stuff you 've just said i mean it 's it reminds me of class you know, the classic piece of advice through the generations about women to men. They, they don't want you to actually solve their problems when they talk about their problems. Uh, so it's worse if you try to help, which even I can't mentally process that. But at the same time, you just sort of accept it and go with it. I mean, what what more can men be taught beyond that, or should we just stick with those basic dictates?
1: I think that's a great point, and I think you've said that really well. And I would, my first guess would be, which I, ha- I my first undigested answer would be, I think that women and men. Well, that's a generalization, but why not? Um, That women feel, think in certain ways and feel things at a certain level that men men don't. And it, it would be, I think women, for instance, probably biologically. I don't know if you and your girlfriend throw social events or dinner parties or, but often the woman will have more, Oh, we need to invite so-and-so four weeks in advance because their grandmother's they know a lot more detail about people and in terms of bonding and gluing. So it's positive that they know more, but there's a negative that the women are also much more hypersensitive about things. Oh, Oh, we didn't call her back by Thursday. It's now Friday. She'll be so angry. And the male doesn't even know what the woman is talking about. So I think that, you know, perhaps in this particular time, I think in the last 30 or 50 years, we've been more in an age of quote-unquote equality, of really there isn't that much difference between the genders, and we can just all be friends and, and co-partners and work it out. But in fact, I think we're kind of acknowledging, again, that there are real differences in timings and clocks and cycles, and for men to be able to sort of honor what they're going through and i think as you're saying exactly don't necessarily try logic um (laughs) because if somebody's saying something you might pick out the logical piece of saying but if i move your car across the street on wednesdays that will mean that we're going to get a parking ticket and what she's actually just saying is i feel unsupported and i have all these details and maybe it's just better to go there there but then also to move the car, as I like to say. Right. So That's maybe a sort it's a igno- larger logic that you can look at. Yes, exactly. I think as you're, you're kind of like suggesting sort of acknowledging the real difference
0: mm.
1: and, and that how much in women their bodies and minds are, are bound together and so that that it can feel intuitive and sort of off the charts. But after menopause, they'll become more like men.
0: Mm. That's something to look forward to. Forward question mark to. <laughs> I don't know.
1: Well, yeah, I think, it'll, I think it'll be really interesting uh, because mm. they have the same amount of free testosterone. They have more free testosterone than they had before. Mm. So I think you'll have, you know, the ideal is, you know, menopause. There's that the, always the story of Aunt Carol. One day she throws the leg of lamb out the window, but the women just are more likely to say, you know, F you. <laughs> Do your own. Right. But maybe it's a better balance.
0: Mm. It's it's a vivid, I don't know if anecdote is the word, a vivid memory you have in the book of, your own menopausal mother throwing a Pyrex dish. Uh, And this is something that to clarify, I suppose, I guess we we've all male and female had moments where we want to throw something Pyrex dish or otherwise, uh, we don't all do it because we feel like it, but so the boundary breaks where feeling like it becomes doing it. Right. What is that?
1: Right. Well, I, I think in this particular type of menopause, it is it is the lifting off of these the cloud of estrogen and oxytocin, mm. where you're just serving people and serving people and serving people. Mm. Where suddenly it cracks and and it blows away, and you're unused to these feelings, and then you may throw it. Mm. I mean, I think it's interesting on, on the male side of it. I'm not not that we call it menopause instead of menopause. (laughs) But I think there is a way for men is that men are really taught to either repress their feelings or tamp them down. They certainly, you know, as with women, we've had enormous um, freedom at, to be real to write about all our lives. Mm-hmm. In The Atlantic, for instance, you know, it's kind of the pieces I've done and other women have done. it. we've talked really um, specifically about our marriages and divorces mm-hmm. and personal lives. Mm-hmm. To a certain extent, like my male colleagues have pointed out, mm-hmm. they go, "As is, it's like, I really can as a man, if I were to write about what my marriage is really like and not having sex and what that is really like, and they always use the example, you know, women complain if the men take too much time cooking, but if a woman, you know, gives birth, gains 40 pounds and never drops it for another 30 years, he dared not ever mention it. So there's a I think there's a double standard about how w- women and men are and one thing that I've learned in writing this book uh, and this memoir is that even though women perhaps tend to overshare their feelings, sometimes men undershare and they they endure depression and mm. and really mood swings and and really depth of misery as we've seen like from david foster wallace and and more and spalding gray Philip seymour Hoffman is another example mm. but that they endure a lot of big mood stuff that they maybe are not as free to talk about as women are mm. so i think i think it's worth opening the question of when anybody gets to their breaking point male or female what they're do what
0: they do now speaking of sharing the details of one's life you you do quite a bit of that in the book yes. and tell me what's what was the process of getting to the point where you could write a book this revealing about all the things that you went through all the things that happened to you all the things that went wrong or even the sort of ways you could be positive about it all what when did you know you could do that or when did you know it was going to be okay if you did that. I mean, the book's not out yet, so who knows, but right. we'll see.
1: Well, that, that's a good and terrifying question, and I'm glad this podcast is a 10-hour long one, so I can answer that. Yes. This was a really painful, this was unlike anything I've ever experienced in my whole life of, like, really, and it, the book describes, like, at 46, like, being totally out of control. I always had this image that I went to my 20s, my 30s, my 40s, and I would get in, increasingly wiser with every decade, mm. and I would be more together. And so I found the most unglued I ever was at age 47. We're really all clattered apart and I go, I have no idea what I'm doing. This is the worst thing I've ever done. That's, of course, when I had an affair, confessed it, got flung out of my house as well as I should have been. But then my partner, who was a married man, actually moved back home. So now I'm alone at 47 in a tiny cabin with two girls who are six and eight, like totally humiliated. And even and so my, even my brand of being a writer before, my book before was Mother on Fire, which was a public school mom. I was like a hero. And now it's kind of like, well, you're just uh, adulterous that you don't know what you're doing and you're old and you're turning 50. So this is pretty bad. So, and I realized actually when all of this was happening, it was extremely traumatic. It was a time of my life where it's kind of like, uh, you know, it's like, oh my God, it's like drinking wine and not eating and taking Ambien and sleeping in my arm. And then my right side became paralyzed. I mean, it was really, uh, as Chelsea Handler would call it, a hot mess. And, but I realized the only way to sort of I couldn't write in any voice of the past of being, and I had a whole tonality with my marriage of my my husband is a great husband of just kind of like our our sort of amiable friendship. There's a scene in Mother on Fire where we're at, uh, I think it's Nat's Early Bite, and we go to breakfast in the morning, and we're both so happy to be reading different sections of the paper. And and we we both love it. And thank God we love the crossword, and really being comfortable in that place, having all of the old voice exploded. So I had to just start sort of writing from a new play. So the first piece was the Atlantic piece a couple years ago, The Case Against Marriage, about my marriage breaking up. and But then this was an interesting journey because I actually tried to write this book from the point of view of, I'm just another suburban Housewife like you with kids and I'm having these freeway meltdown flashes. And then only on like the very last page of the book do I mention that the man that I'm with. Oh yeah, we went to Burning Man and had an affair, but you don't want to know more more about that (laughs) in one paragraph at the end. And so my editor who, uh, you know, Jill Bielowski, who had never read any of my stuff before. So there's a great experience about being in midlife and mid-career and having an editor who's totally new to your stuff. Mm-hmm. And they see a totally new thing and there's no, we don't want any hits from the past. She just read the first draft. She said, this, makes no sense at all. Hmm. This book doesn't make... Like, who's the guy you're living with? Why? How did this happen? So she yeah. kept going... More
0: questions than answers. Oh,
1: my bit. God. She kept going back and back. And I go, well, I don't want to write that section. I, and she made me put in all the tracking stuff of being thrown out of my house, of, like, going drinking with, like, my girlfriends. And of say I'm working on a piece that the Sundance Theater Lab is is producing, which has been great. And I worked with Lisa Peterson, the Berkshires, in um, December. Hmm. And the questions got even more specific. And one of them was really painful stuff. One of the ones that's going to be in the show, that's going to be at Joe's pub. I'm previewing it in May is, is how do you tell your long-term spouse that you've had an affair and the marriage is over? How do you do that? How do you plan to do that? And where do you do that? And suddenly it sparked this whole like mem- memory for me of my husband was working in Las Vegas. I had to book a plane ticket, get babysitting for the kids sit down and my brother at the time had said a man needs like forty eight hours to get bad news, forty eight to seventy two before he can go back to work. So you need to time your announcement mm. <laughs> like mm. like Thursday at noon if he's going back to work Saturday at at eight. I mean it was it was really I think that this work has really pushed me, this piece to be just really Personal and say what happened and not be able to hide behind a hilarious riff or something <laughs> on Kindles or throwing an iPhone, but just like say, did you cry? So there's a lot of I joke with the friends like I sat down and I cried mm. for four hours. I mean, and that that has been a real stretch for me,
0: real stretch. Mm.
1: But but we I wrote. That's what five it's all about,
0: right? Yeah. If you if you're not if you can't say that about a project you're doing, you might not want to do that project.
1: Well, I suppose so. I mean, it's really getting out of one's comfort zone of like going. Where you go, I don't know. This is, and I think as a humorist, I'm always like trying to find the laugh in every paragraph. Mm. And this, it's just about people just making huge mistakes in the middle of life and being lost and really not knowing where they're going Mm. for months and months. But I think that's sort of interesting. It's interesting for me to read about. But as a writer, you go, where it's just the stuff of your life. I mean, partly the way that you live your life is part of the plot and part of the story. Mm -hmm. So the kind of person that you, who you are, who tends to on a lark, go to Burning Man and then screw up and have an affair. I mean, you're making your own plot there. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, it's not something I ever intended to do.
0: There's a couple of these classic storytelling rules that kept coming up in my mind as I was reading your book that I've heard repeated by many, a storyteller. Number one, that if you're, Making a joke, make yourself the butt of the joke. And number two, when it's a story involving other people in the way that this one does, never, never write about their motivations. Just write about what you experienced them doing. Do, do those ring true to you as, as guidelines as well?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Because you seem to follow them. It's a great question and a great point. And especially this is, this is just murderously complicated to write down because there were, um, I think it's true that I all, all, I'm definitely the worst behaved person in this book. <laughs> and I think, you know, um, Philip Humbert, again, at Sundance, and he he heard some of it out loud the first time. He goes, man, there's stuff in therapy. And I put down in our couples therapy what I said, and I say some pretty horrific stuff, which is true, but I think I have to paint the character that way. Mm. And I think there's this image of modern couples, of co-partners, that the man's work and the woman's work are equally important. Mm. Uh, but since... The way I came together with my partner, he was my theater manager. Mm. He, sometimes he would say, "After you've lived together for a few years, you know, you're just a big diva." And I'm like, "Going, <laughs> when you met me, I was doing one-woman shows. Well, what was your first clue?" And and it's kind of like, and I think that for women, you know, and I think it's a fantasy, in uh, sort of a buried fantasy, secret fantasy that many women talk about. Mm. And I call it Jackie O stepping out of Double Day <laughs> in the rain under an umbrella held by Maury's temples one, that we are
0: many women who work You just really want a gay man servant at some ex- point. <laughs>
1: Which I guess Liza Minnelli had with David Guest, but that didn't really work out so well, I suppose. But yes, you do. And that, that is something to look at for women in midlife. Do you really want a heterosexual male partner or do you want a masseuse and a caterer and a chauffeur and guy who take out the garbage? And, and would you rather have sexual relations or have somebody rub your feet? And, and it's a really hard question is kind of like that. I just want to move to a hotel and being taken care of. Can this man do it for me? But that's something to, Really look at before you attempt to pretend to have a heterosexual relationship with all of this co-partnering, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So I think in going back to your question, I think I have to come off as the worst. And this was very tricky because when I had this affair with a married person, a lot of people got hurt and they were people who didn't choose to be part of this story and wouldn't choose to continue to be part of this story. Mm-hmm. And, and it's kind of, uh, of of the wreckage that occurred. So I, you know, and there's always, we call these, you know, auto, autobiographical fiction or a memoir so that I mean, as always, the the details, the essence and the emotion of what was true is in there. Mm-hmm. But some of the specific details of naming who was there, you, you mm-hmm. I don't think that you can do that as a memoirist. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's already, you know, off the charts of what I'm even writing about this thing. But I don't think that you can it, start to assign blame to people or look at your their motivation, as you're saying.
0: To what extent can you do the sort of names have been changed, uh, people have been conflated into single characters, that sort of thing? I mean, we're in America, I think more than anywhere else, we're pretty pious about memoir and being, well, you have to be exactly true uh, as much as possible, like I'm being sold the truth, and so you have to be, maybe you can change names, okay, maybe you can combine some people, but how much do you th- did you feel like you could do um, as far as not fictionalization, but... Putting some distance, I guess, between your actual life and what you write down here.
1: Oh, that's another good question. And it's been tricky because in this particular case, because of, you know, uh, you know, if you Google my name, it, the first Google search is Sandra Tsinglo affair. Divorce. As my daughter learned it in sixth grade where they go, hey, we're in Studio City. Let's, let's Google our parents. Whoops. <laughs> so, um, so it is this period for better or, or for worse. It's not like my affair was everyone's affair, but it's kind of like when it first happened among my set of educated middle class women because we are, among this tribe, the rates of divorce are as low as they were in the 1950s mm-hmm. of these sort of educated middle mm-hmm. to upper income couples, and people stay together because of the fragility of the children. Of mm-hmm. kind of like, well, then Nate or Dylan
0: will, you
1: know, with his ADHD. If we get divorced, then it'll really
0: upset the children in
1: their track of going to, you know, because uh, kids
0: love living with a zombie marriage in a house.
1: Apparently, <laughs> well, supposedly they do. They prefer that to happy divorced parents, but. Anyway. Um I don't know. Yes. Anyway, well, anyway. yes, that that's another for the next 10 hour podcast. Um so, you know, so so that people because sort of my divorce became everyone's divorce of and I experienced as I said the whole Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad <laughs> of quietly unhappily married moms coming to me and saying, what is this about? How do you do this? Because it was kind of unheard of among the people who knew us. It was like watching people jump in flames from the sky or a car crash of two long-term married people in stable households with great children how in, like, that they would choose some kind of a wacky adolescent passion over the stability of their incomes and families just is unheard of.
0: It, it was just like... Like were asking Evil Knievel what it felt like to, like, not reach the end of Snake River Canyon <laughs> when he jumped over it.
1: Exactly! Yeah. It's kind of unheard of, and people mm. are, are curious of what other dynamics does so happen since then, mm. uh, not being the pie piper of this, I saw all these marriages fall apart shortly thereafter, and it was a lot of public mm. school activist moms who were camping, and then within three years, everybody's marriages after 20 years blew up. Mm. So so I think because people wanted to know exactly how this happened, the timings are correct in terms of four months and four months, because people really want to know how what the timing was and what occurred there. So the basic logistics of what happened are accurate. And I think... So so it's actually accurate. I don't sort of name the other parties. And I have Mr. X and Mr. Y in this book because my ex-husband, long suffering.
0: Oh, Mr. X, X. X, because
1: he's my ex, right. It's kind of like there's no names. I mean, you can, there's no names mentioned. And to a certain extent, I think that in this book, like Mr. X, my ex, he, I mean, he's always been sort of a, a, a hero, not a hero in my books because he had the, he survived being married to me, but he, he doesn't do anything that's not noble. Hmm. He's a pretty sensible, noble, decent guy yeah. who, as soon as I, this whole blew up, his first moves were to start college funds on his daughters and get life insurance. I mean, he's so protective of his daughters. He's hmm. really a, you know, salt of the earth guy. So, um, so I think with that and that and, and uh, Mr. Y goes through the most, he gets the most scrutiny because we live together. Hmm. So, but did he, and he's finally read the book. I've had the fortune of being partnered with heterosexual men who aren't huge. I gotta read every draft. They kind of would like, and that's the beauty. That's why I love straight men. It's kind of like, or it, the manuscript is sitting there, go, maybe I'll read it, or maybe I'll read the newspaper and have a beer, or <laughs> go fishing. <laughs>
0: I can do any of these things potentially. <laughs> these are all up. Right? Then.
1: They're they're not. Yeah, they're not even gay men or gossipy women. They're straight men. That's why I love
0: them. <laughs> and you say you're the worst behaved character in this book, but I feel like, and I've been reading your books a while. And I'll bring out the first one. I actually, own a couple copies of this book, but I couldn't find them, so I had to go to our friendly downtown library. Amazing. Get, uh, Death takes a holiday. In 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 this book, you're you also are pretty hard on yourself, not for the same things, but you just. I feel like you're writing a lot about your own laziness in that book. Yes. So it's always do you always pick a quality you hate about yourself and kind of go with that?
1: Yeah, I mean, but I think that's a, the essence of sort of comedic or humorous mm-hmm. writings. You have I mean, it's basically there's the Jack Benny character mm-hmm. that lives within all of us and sometimes when talking about my own cheapness, <laughs> I am actually channeling how he used to talk about his own cheapness. So there there's definitely several humorous traits that that monologists or or characters do that are always the funny ones. I mean, you always want to be somebody who overeats, over like or the Bridget Jones's diary. You always want to swear that you're on a diet but collapse by the afternoon. You you know, you want to be panty pinching, you want to try to make really good purchases and then make the worst purchase, the most exorbitant purchase. You want to be a, a pr- procrastinator is always funny. So there I think there's certain kind of not like um commedia dell'arte but there there's certain kind of humorous tropes that monologists mm. use to write. Mm. Some be, some people can be, I mean, Woody Allen did hypochondria. I don't have that one at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I tend to be taken anyway. Yeah, <laughs> right. The junkyard dog who eats everything and I don't I actually don't really get sick very much. So mm. but I think these are the huge and, and he Woody Allen over worries. So these are standard
0: things that we mm. we take on and I can be extremely lazy. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone can. I mean, it. I read this book. I read Mad Woman and the Volvo and then right after I reread Death, Takes a Holiday. It was fascinating to put those two books side by side, especially with the near 20 year space between them, 18 years. Or so, but tell me, this, this cover image of you sitting in front of Cupid's hot dogs, uh, you know, you dress differently, you look the same. What, what, what do you think of the Sandra Singlow here in this photo for this book at this time in this place? <laughs>
1: Uh yeah I see somebody who was um I'm in black I'm I'm, I'm affecting sort of a rock and roll affect mm-hmm. I remember those shoes um <laughs> one that I wouldn't affect now so much because I think now that I'm 52 it's kind of like I I spend so far and far less attention to my outside appearance it's it's kind of um frightening as you see when i'm sitting here in my sandals i think at this particular time i think of somebody who was still i think new to kcrw of like going this is great i am groovy it's kind of kcrw i think even had a poster and i was photographed at lax in black and it's kind of like i remember those early days of like i got it going on uh i'm gonna go to new york and do off-broadway shows and it's just gonna be great i'm like 33 is solved. Fingers now. So I see this person in the first, in the very much the first act where you go. And I remember going to New York the first time and doing Aliens in America at second stage. And, and I like to say, you know, that was the magical experience of Manhattan where every kiosk has fluttering magazines of the New Yorker and Time Out and New York Magazine with your great reviews in them. And it's like, dun, 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 dun. It's like the, the George Gershwin American in Paris, Gene Kelly doing a plie or a jeté as you're going down Broadway. And then coming back <laughs> two years or so later with my second show, mm-hmm. Bad Sex with Bud, Bud Camp, which I still thought was a funny show, but it had you. That's the second act or second book, mm-hmm. second moment where they go. The first time you come out of the box, they go, "Hey, here is someone who have who we haven't heard of that's not as bad as we think." And the second time you have to prove yourself, and then it plummets down Ah, and you really start to (laughs) sophomore slump yes well yeah or or it's not just a slump you've tried something different it is just the way that the audience goes back and forth if you've gotten a rave then it's time to really look at why you got the rave so it kind of goes in cycles Mm. so that i see somebody who's just very much at the beginning of the first
0: act going yay everything's coming Mm. up roses (laughs) you write about The situation of the, I guess you call them the, the late boomers or the dumpies in one early essay. And it's funny because you talk about Volvos fairly soon in the book. And I said, Oh, hey, Volvo, there's a resonance with the new book. And you talk about IKEA furniture, um, a lack coffee table. I actually was reading this at, sitting at a lack coffee table myself. (laughs) This is 20 years later. (laughs) I'm, but you know, I'm me. I'm 30 this year. So I'm around the same age of the people you were writing about in the nineties and. I don't know how much the situation has changed generationally uh, because there's there's the sort of comparison to the baby boomers you have going on with the late boomers, like, oh, why don't we have as much as them? In fact, we were pointing out uh, your copy of Douglas Copeland's Generation X yes. very much about that, like, yes. we are the first generation to have a lower standard of living than our parents. Oh, my God, what do we do? And there was that. I feel like people my age, I don't even know what to call us, are the same, we're in the same boat financially and we're sort of maybe even more... Uh, plodding along in our crappy careers, or what have you, but we're also we're more more unmoored there's no re- there's no real reference point we 're kind of free floating which makes it better and worse i don't know do you, Do you get a sense of the people who are now in this same period that you wrote about and joked about in the Depth, depth takes a holiday days
1: yeah, and man, if you're turning thirty, then you must have been reading all this stuff when you were four years old, it's college pretty. <laughs> Wow. Okay, 15. I guess that's not not so bad. It's not that many years ago. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, the IKEA furniture that, and the McJobs, if you look back at Douglas Copeland right there, that, you know, many of the truisms are, are the same. And they're, and the divorce was already factored in many of the social dynamics. And cultural and family dynamics were already true in Generation X. Um, I think now, and I have two daughters who are eleven and thirteen, so they're even at the tippy point. They're, they're the post millennials coming up, and I think the one the main thing that I think is different today than then is is a sort of anxiety. A because you know you can go to an Ivy League and get an internship that pays you nothing for 10 years. I mean, that that has come out of whack. I think if anything, there's a burden on young people today. And I know some young women who are actresses and writers that are about 20 of, you know, thanks to the success of Leah Dunham's Girls on HBO, they, if you look around your apartment, say, I'm 24 and I don't have an amazing HBO series that I wrote uh, talking about the dysfunction of my generation, or if I'm 19 and I don't yet have a YouTube selfie movie of 2 million hits on me and my drunk kitchen or, you know, and I, it's like, we have some kids staying with us and they're all, you know, 17 through 19 boys mm-hmm. coming through town for spring break and people on, on YouTube are really the, you know, the celebrities of the time were going to American Idol late, later today, and they consider that already sort of an old thing mm. of 13th season. So I, I think that there's almost a pressure on young people because of Facebook and the internet and the, and the Tumblr, as yes. I call it, and <laughs> the Tumblr, that, that and, and the Instagram of like. Douglas
0: Copeland calls that the-ing, by the way. He actually has it word. Where- <laughs>
1: Well he went yeah, vying uh which is that's hilarious. Of of it's kind of like there's seems to be ever so much potential, but maybe not. And it is a little thing and I think that it it kind of gets everybody in this time. If you put up a YouTube movie of yourself, it should overnight get a million hits. (laughs) And if it only gets three What's wrong? And that's very possible, because there's a lot of stuff out there. So I would imagine that sort of that unmoored feeling that you describe of, if I just had this amazing thought, and it's a meme, and I put it out there as a ringtone, I should have 2 million people and like Japan should be calling me, but it made that your ideas have to be not just an idea that you had and you said it and you had a beer and then you farted and then you went to sleep, but it had to become a meme. Right. I mean, go viral, go viral. I mean, don't you hate that?
0: phrase like viral or how do you feel about that? I don't think about it. What's if you choose, we sort of cast around for not role models, but, um, maybe benchmarks. You know, if Lena Dunham is the one you choose, it's going to be a tall order because she's done a very specific thing. A lot of us have just sort of been like, well, all I have to go by is myself. I'm, I'm, we're essentially at sea. You know, I like open sea. It's like, well, I can go any direction. I don't really know what's in any of them or where I'm supposed to go. I think of, you know, you talk about your piece, Revealing the Affair in the Atlantic, uh, where the part of it is this question of, can marriage work anymore? You know, what is marriage now? And I get a lot of questions, you know, I, for my entire adult life, whatever girl I'm with, I, somebody will ask me, usually someone older, like, are you going to marry her? And, I feel like maybe in the early nineties a thirty year old would have a position like Sure, of course I am, or no way, my marriage well that's a patriar- patriarchal institution i'm not going to buy into that now it's sort of like i don't even know what the question means it's sort of like they might as well be speaking old Norse like what is that i get what i don't even know what the what would be a plus or the minus of that I know it's a thing, but what do i how do i even it's I don't know. A lot of, a lot of the sort of planks of adulthood got taken away somehow, where I'm not sure even how to respond to them. Not like, man, marriage, forget it. Or it's, it's just sort of like. Huh, that's a curious thing you would ask that question. I'm only 29. Why do I have to think about that? You know, you know what exactly, I mean?
1: It's like an old piece of furniture. Like, like, isn't it time to get your Buick LeSabre with the tail fins? Right. Or,
0: or. Where's your armoire? Yeah,
1: where's your armoire? <laughs> or your speaker system? It's a Bose sound system. Right. What are you going to get? Then you go, I'm on my mm-hmm. iPhone. I think that's a really interesting take. And I, I, I absolutely I can see how you feel that because of marriage. I mean, economically, more women. I mean, in Japan, many more young women are making more money than the men are, right. and so and the men are just kind of like close. The young men are closing down, and there's right. a word in Japanese for husband that really means a bag of trash. <laughs> <I
0: haven't laughs> so, heard that.
1: so I yeah. think there's a real imbalance between what the genders are doing now, and I think mm. some of the complexity comes from what women want or what they think they want. Mm. I think men are sort of standing. By and enduring it, but I think the women are really going through. They're always at the front of the revolution. Of I am a worker. I'm a CEO. I'm a mother. I'm a wife. I'm a baker. And and there I'm the maid. I you know that I think that women lead. And they have more economic power. They lead a lot of the confusion about what these relationships are. So mm. I have no advice to you.
0: I'm like not even, I'm not complaining. Yeah. It's just sort of like, that's hmm, interesting that I don't have an answer. Like that I can't conceive of an answer to that question. You know what yeah, I mean? It's but just the like- only
1: clock on it is in terms of making babies for women. And I think that my generation was really surprised that the clock had not been turned to 45. Although ah. people can do it in vitro to 55. But
0: that has pretty much stayed, stayed <laughs> the same. figured an exception would have been made for you guys.
1: Yes, but no. Biology is that, but I think it's a, I think it's a fun time of life. Oh, sure. And I think what will happen for you, if I may predict. Wait, are your parents alive?
0: Yes, they okay. are alive.
1: So that in, in in that moment in the future, and and by nature they will die before you will, which yes, they can only have. I think that one once one parent goes, if it puts, it makes the story different it makes the context different when you start mm. thinking about the future. That, that's what happened for me, that mm. I was living together with my then-partner for seven years mm. and we weren't married and we were starting to buy our second house together mm. and then my mother died and I go, because I never really believed in the idea of marriage then. I thought mm. maybe a commitment ceremony. I didn't know why I was getting married. Mm. I, I was very ambivalent about it at the time. Mm. But then when my mother popped off and you go, you know, what are we going to do? Who are we? What am I fighting against? But I was like about thirty-four at that point,
0: a few years more than you. Yes, yeah. Mm. It's another. It's, it's I was able to see a bit down the road reading uh, about books like yours when I was, you know, a teenager. But as well, you know, about it was not just about life, but about Los Angeles because I right. didn't know I would live here, right. um, and. It's funny because this this book, Depth Takes a Holiday, a subtitled essay is from Lesser Los Angeles. You have another book a year in Van Nuys, which references the well-known uh, and much derided town of the San Fernando Valley. And it's I was, I'd never read this before, but on the back there's a quote from the Los Angeles Times Book Review, which says, It's about time that someone took on the periphery of Los Angeles with such wicked delight, because, face it, in this town the periphery is the real heart of the city. Today I realize... This might have been the last era, you could confidently say that. Uh, That's not really true anymore, is it?
1: That's a really interesting um, observation, I think. Yeah, I think that that's that's probably true. This was at the time, this was coming out of the time, before your time, but I know you were sitting there as a teenager reading this stuff. You know, if you recall, Spy Magazine was Mm -hmm. a huge... Zeitgeist Sea Change at that time, mm. if you remember. Like, the great writers of them, a great friend of mine, Henry Alford, mm. w- wrote then. he's still a good friend of mine today, he's in Vanity Fair, and the New Yorker, he's got that since. But they had the really smart, smart, smart writers in, in the 80s writing for a spy that was really taking on celebrity culture. There was a cover, Ivana Rama, if you remember it, of her big face and and the way that they would play satirically with a lot of the celebrity stuff at the time. That was sort of the last time that celebrities ruled the earth, right?
0: Uh, Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) The
1: last time that they ruled the earth like dinosaurs. Mm. So hence this whole idea of the A list and the B list and the C Mm. list was really in in the dinosaur times, (laughs) we're hiding in the cave. But now, and I would say again, And, you know, just going back to the YouTube thing, with the advent of some 20-year-old kid who can transfix millions of kids by sort of barfing into a sack and then saying something funny about it, it really is a different time where, at this time, the care and feeding of celebrities, Mm -hmm. they don't command as quite the swath that they did mm. before because all the internet and the new media and the stars that can burble up mm. that are, you know, I, I hear a lot of like these kids like about Jenna marbles. Is she on TV? No, she's just on YouTube, but, but I've heard the name. Exa- actually. No, exa- not yes. But if you're among teen tweens and they talk about all their YouTubers as they were at dinner last night, Oh my God. It's like, it's a totally different world. So I think you're, that's a really interesting con. That's a really mm perceptive comment
0: well, It's in the sense of the yeah that the culture and but even literally it's it's like i i when i moved to los angeles i didn't have to come here it was just because the city itself fascinated me but watching what people have been here watching how people who have been here a long time think of the city conceive of it versus the way i do there's just this huge gap and i've had to work on a book about los angeles myself these past couple years so i've been thinking a lot about it. And the fact that it's, it strikes me as odd that somebody would refer to anything in the anything in the San Fernando Valley as it's, that is its own city as Los Angeles. That people refer to Pasadena, where we sit, as Los exactly. Angeles. Like, guys, are you sure all this stuff is Los Angeles? Because I'm pretty sure a lot of it is not in town. I'm pretty sure some of it is 30 miles away. Uh, there's that. I mean, do you see a generational change in the sort of perceptions of? this, I guess, this greater area you've been writing about for the last 20 years?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there are two answers to that. One is the bigger, sort of more national look of, it's kind of like it was just New York, uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco, but now you have kind of like uh, Buffalo, Mm. Austin, Portland, Mm. here in Los Angeles, then it's become Highland Park, Mm. you know, and that was not in like 20 years ago, that was not I I remember I was just actually fired from KCRW in 24, where I was doing a commentary actually about my then partner Mm. who had just moved from West Hollywood to Highland Park. Mm. And that was you, you've gotta be kidding me. You move from what? You are a cool family. You're moving from West Hollywood to Highland Park. What's there? There's chain link fence and graffiti in 2004. And a few years later, I saw my first gay friend move from West Hollywood to Van eyes because they had <laughs> adopted a kid. So I've really seen in the last ten years tons of change of people mm. moving everywhere mm. in the city and not being less defined by if they're not living in the Los Feliz or a three one zero. And also to a point where it has now become I was like God bless everyone out there like totally unhip the three one zero is like totally you know and, and recently we went to Santa Monica and the evening we go oh it's actually nice here there's such a backlash against the three one zero that 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 is now you know nobody would be caught dead on that side of town i'm in highland park or eagle rock Uh, eagle rock who knew now
0: eagle rock really really when the train gets to santa monica i'll probably go there more often i never (laughs) i never did buy a car which i guess is a different situation from the way it would have been in the 90s where it seemed like you know people i i mentioned that to people who have been here a while and they'll say well then how do you how do you make your commute from from uh i don't know uh Studio City to Torrance. How do you, how do you get from Westwood to, uh, Pasadena every day? It's like, well, I don't do that. But, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, there's a little different attitude there. There was maybe a more expansive sense of, los angeles before or at least a more willingness to drive a lot i don't know
1: uh, yeah yeah I, I, yeah i think it was different also traffic patterns were far different than even going going from you know a casual friday at disney Hall where they have to end it early because of the big traffic you know i think the traffic has gotten worse going laterally so there's that um but i think you know but I think your attitude yeah public transportation has has really changed stuff where kids mm. can get on the train and go to school and high school and loxa and um it's it's yeah it's a it's a changed time
0: and by twenty thirty six they can go to the veterans administration I- all right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's really going to be something. No, that's interesting. Yeah. And I think that downtown LA, you know, it's kind of like since you're referring, going down memory lane, you know, throwback Thursdays. If you lived here, you'd be home by now. My like novel was about LA, the downtown LA always being a bombed out shell and that would always be true. And that is no longer true.
0: Characters, it's been a little bit since I've read that book, but you have some characters actually like move there, right? It's, yes, it's, yes, and,
1: and it is a trumped-up thing of, and it was a sign that I saw on one of the downtown condominium that said, if you lived here, you'd be home now, a right. little sign up there uh, near a skyscraper. And so it's a couple that gets tricked into moving and buying a condo about and, and, uh, based on a downtown city that will be built around it that will never happen. Mm-hmm. And I had been cynical around this at this time because I'd seen a few, you know, money pouring into downtown LA and then it's still a bombed out shell. But in fact, that has changed. And I have the Staples yeah. Center and the Nokia and they even have a Target down there, which is unheard of back <laughs> in the day. So it has really changed.
0: Yeah, it's now the, sort of the most interesting place in town, at least to me. Yeah. Uh, And certainly the next place I would try living in Los Angeles. But why, why that sense that, why that sense that downtown would never be downtown? They're sort of like, look, we accept it. We all live in Van Nuys. You know, you know what I mean? Like everything, everywhere you want to go is, is going to be far away from everything else. What, what was that sense about?
1: Um, I, well, you know what? It was a different time. And it was at that point, I I would say, if I'm really going to think back. Real estate prices were really unaffordable at the time. Mm. No one could buy a house. And you know, if you're really in the nineteen nineties. The interest rates in in the Reagan years, they were like twelve and since we're getting down to brass tax, but mm. as my book shows, I love refinancing. Mm. <laughs> it's yeah. about like mortgage interest rates are are a passion of mine. Mm. And interest rates, my young friend, mm. were twelve and fourteen percent. Mm. And real estate prices were pretty high. So you're looking at like a three thousand dollar a month like mortgage it's mm-hmm. quite, so that it was really where people, if they moved to the valley. And since I married a musician, you know, what's the quickest way to get to the valley, marry a musician? Um, Because they all came from the Midwest, and they all wanted a house with a lawn, and they wanted to be on one floor so they could wheel their amps to the garage that they would then remake into a studio. So that's what they all did, and it was almost like a defiant, yeah, we can't really afford to live in the middle of the city, but this is how we are pioneers, and we're staking out this ground here. And there's certain pride. And I remember writing in these books about – and Frank Zappa – who praised this area. We're in Lancaster. That's cool. So at the time of if you lived here, you'd be home by now, the artists were saying, I can't afford a loft in downtown LA or in Santa Monica, so I'm going to move to Lancaster and be cool. was a
0: rebellious aspect. Exactly,
1: yes. of living in an unhit part of town and saying, I'm going to be a great artist and live in a really weird place.
0: It's a fascinating combination of rebellion and non-rebellion, though, because you say they really wanted a house with a lawn, and there's... I, and that's, to me, that's like the marriage question. Like, I guess I don't actively not want that, but then why, would I want, you know, it's the same, like, how would I know whether I wanted a house with a lawn? It seems like it's, it's one of those nebulous questions, but you know, my dad is a solid, solidly in the baby boomer uh, cohort has said we were very much age of Aquarius in the late sixties, but so many of us still had that subconscious need to follow the call of the white picket fence that we couldn't quite break out of that. I mean, was that a, phenomenon still affecting the late boomers?
1: Absolutely. And I think that your dad put it really well, because Mm. this was, you know, there was the Cold War generation, the greatest generation. And then when we came up, and I was in the 60s and 70s growing up in Southern California. So we were really, it was a really mixed message we were getting from our parents. My dad worked in aerospace, and my mother was a housewife, but they were very educated. And it was that middle class upbringing of we will drive you to ballet and piano lessons and go to museums and appreciate art. Mm. So, and you'll have all these wonderful hobbies till so you graduate from college in something sensible and go to work in the aerospace industry. Mm. And, and you may not become a painter or a ballerina because those are really unstable and you'll starve on the street. <laughs> so it was this, it, we got this total mix of appreciating art and, and just kind of idolizing certain artists, but we may not become artists. You might must become mm. a doctor and engineer because mm. those are really stable. You must have a suburban life. You, you must be the doctor who also plays the violin on the side you know it's that sort of so to break out and become an artist it wasn't a thing that was before the creative class came up Mm. and pixar movies came in so there wasn't really a a entrepreneur a creative capital entrepreneur class at the time Mm. whereas now it's kind of like yeah be an animator and work at pixar and make a zillion dollars this is a really different time so i think what your dad is talking about is this combo platter of people certainly of my era that were somewhat I wanted to be a performance artist, but that was around the time that Laurie Anderson was touring, Mm. got a million dollars for a record deal it was touring with you know, for Warner Brothers with, Mm. with um Big science, I, right. I guess. And so, so we really had this idea. And my era in this book, *Of Death Takes a Holiday*, was did *Slaves yes. of New York*, Brett Easton Ellis, *Less Than Zero. So there was really this idea that you could, in graduate school, write your collection of short stories. It could be as short as 140 pages, but as long as they talk about the zeitgeist of your city, like Janowitz a right. slave of sub New York, of people needing to live with other people and be their slaves to to live in New York, and then it would speak to the zeitgeist i guess it's like the leah dunham girls Mm. and it will make a zillion dollars and you could, yeah i say the fashion spread and british vogue all Mm. will follow Mm. so that then Ah. it is sort of translated out of where your dad was at to no you could really cash in big if
0: you expressed your meme at this time there's this idea you talk about in the book uh that in the first book that you know we could be artists and still never lack key butcher block items, which is fascinating. Exa-
1: no, exactly. And I'm thinking because real artists, like at the time when I was about like 28 or so, I got to work with Rachel Rosenthal, a performance artist mm-hmm. in the sort of performance art collective. And I remember the first time all of us went to her place. It's like, sort of like, I forget where it is exactly in town, but it was like a real loft. Mm-hmm. And if you, and I'm saying it was not a cool or groovy yes. loft. It's like, Oh my God. She's a famous performance artist. She's in her sixties or seventies. I see a hot plate and a cat. Right. <laughs> like it was like, Oh no, it wasn't the, cause she's really made so like it wasn't the romanticized version yeah. or not the butcher's block, but you know, that where you're maybe may drawn to not to metropolitan museum, mm. but to the gift shop to buy right, a cat <laughs> plate. Um, so that we really, yeah, had a romanticized image of what art was. It's a big mm. flat and a view, and then an easel sitting up there. When you see how real artists work, uh, m- my partner worked with Ru- Ruth Malachek at Ma- Mabu Mines in New York and just went for a memorial. Mm-hmm. And she was really, literally almost penniless to the day that she died, and people had to pitch in for their medical bills. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the reality of being an
0: artist with real integrity. Right. Now, this, this, these late boomers with these ideas, we we go from Death Takes a Holiday to, almost 20 years later, Mad Woman and the Volvo. How how, have, how is this generation Fair at least among among the uh among those you know among your friends among among the part of this cohort that is your own you know personal cohort
1: oh good question. I love juxtaposing these two books together. I think what happened out of these girls that started here, which is my trajectory exactly that they ended up this group as i started actually ended up living i don't want to say fairly uh, conventional like surprisingly not like conservative lives for them these in my generation in our 20s we dated all the bad boys the heartbreak the musicians the rock and rollers whatever typically around the early 30 around 30 or so we found the guy that was not the dangerous unstable guy we found a really nice sensible smart Talented creative class guy who could also make soup mm. and build shelves and wanted to settle down, mm. and so the then, noblemen yes. the noblemen and then we made children mm. and together and made these households that were these uh, sort of alt Alternative family households. We, um, we found and, and we settled down. We made soup. We got a little bungalow in some part of town. We grew vegetables. He made soup. We made a couple of kids. Mm -hmm. We found out we couldn't afford private school at 20,000 a year. So we formed charter schools and, and led our lives. And then around for mid, the mid forties, the -hmm. second rebellion came (laughs) along where we remembered who we were when we started in our twenties and then Threw off that sh- the the shell that we had put on and and sort of almost reverted back from forty five to becoming
0: back who we were at twenty five. Did you did you imagine this Sandra Singlow sort of judging you harshly?
1: I, yes, I think all young people judge. What would she old- have said? She, I think she she would have said, "Wow, that's sad." <laughs> I think all young people judge older people mm. harshly because they actually haven't walked the walk. And then mm. I found this you know, figure on the front of death takes a holiday knew everything mm-hmm. had not made many mistakes mm-hmm. and was going to, and had solved it and was going to rock the world and was done. Mm-hmm. And as I say, I think it, it was another part of the book where a friend where I go, so to my friend, Dan, who was, my marriage is totally apart, I'm alone in the cabin, I said, man, I I used to think that I was getting smarter as I got older, but the older I get, the more stupid I really feel. Mm. And he said, well, that's fine, it's just, it's you're not stupid, it's just that your perception is finally catching up to reality. (laughs) (laughs) That you realize you don't know any, if you haven't walked in, people, I think younger people, especially if they're bright and talented, don't actually have real empathy and real sympathy until they gain another 20 years and see their own dreams become unglued. Although they say that young, yeah, it's it's good to have more confidence when you're young, because you need that confidence evolutionarily to barrel through and say, yeah, I'm going to take down by the storm.
0: I think 30-year-olds today might have less confidence than 30-year-olds of the early 90s. I think we've gone from, I don't want to extrapolate too far from my own experience. It might not generalize, but I hear people tell, talk about how they knew everything. It's a very common thing to say. I knew, thought I knew everything when I was 30, 20, 15, what have you. But that sounds like more confidence than I've ever been able to summon. I think maybe people around 30 now are sort of like, they've gone from I know everything to I guess nothing is knowable. So, you know, we might, it's it's getting into the realms of Beckett, I think, at this point. But do you think that sounds like a lateral move? I, I don't know if it's better to consider yourself as knowing everything or to consider nobody is knowing anything. So just hold on. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point, and I don't know how it translates for you in terms of education, mm. because we do have higher education now, mm. and I don't know what kind of frame it, you come out of with that, where higher education is really ridiculously expensive. There's a lot of specialization. I mean, I, I taught in the MPW writing, mm-hmm. master professional writing at USC for a while, in terms of what our, what are young pe- what our young people have to learn? And I think that career paths are really sort of all over the place. I think yeah. in my day we still had back in my day there still oh, was oh, an oh. image of a book author that if you had somebody publish a book of yours, then you go, huzzah, I'm a made author, they will fly me to New York wow. and throw me a reading in a mahogany paneled room and all hmm. will be well. Sort sure. of today at I can tell you where it is from where I sit and it'll translate for you. Today, it's like, as soon as you get a book contract, it's like, you go, Oh my God. They, they make you start a Twitter feed, yeah. even if you're 80. <laughs> now,
0: now I gotta do stuff. <laughs>
1: yeah, now it's like, it almost becomes a liability when your book comes out that that's gonna be a referendum on you haven't called in as many favors as you should and wow. it's gonna change. So, so everything, <laughs> I think maybe you've young, you young, you yang people, yes. because everything is changing. Book publishing is changing, newspapers changing, digital is taking over, but we don't really know what digital is is Mm. so and and i think that you're also of an era certainly with my daughters of being able to download stuff for free Mm -hmm. and that is wonderful and put it up for free but you're still kind of still figuring out how to monetize what
0: you do well then in in a way you you personally are ahead because of the way your career has taken shape because i think these days uh, the, the other day i was thinking this that i hate the word content just it's just icky but thinking in terms of experience delivered rather than content makes more sense these days and you know you've You've been your career has been at least half live performance, right? Yeah. You've, you've been all about how how have you been all why have you been all about that? How did you know to be more about that um, than than other writers? I mean, it seems like you were first a performer. Than a writer is that true?
1: Yeah, and and well, I think there is another two things I want to say to that. One is, I at my age, middle-aged people, often we think how lucky we were that our mm. career started in no. the late in the 80s because that where people really did get paid for stuff. Mm. And now we're of an era where, although we're old, we're old and ancient. We are of a cultural group. We came up in a culture where people were used to paying for things. Mm. So our peers and in theater, you know, when you get to your Elaine Stretch years, you good because like old Jews will pay to go to the theater they're used to that that's that's what they do so that there's real economy going along with that where young people in the YouTube generation there isn't that much money going back and forth I think with performance um, I began actually as a playwright and as a composer and pianist and musician I didn't start out in writing at all and my first monologues were all these Victor Borga on acid type piano logs Mm -hmm. where I told stories in front of the piano and then someone pointed out to me that it might be simpler for me if I didn't, if I could get out from behind the piano and just tell a story. Yeah. So it's evolved in a very non-organic fashion. And so I, you know, I, I began telling stories and it was just in workshops. Um, it was, I could try to write something like a novel from the point of view of a Cambodian man fleeing, but those pieces that I tried to write, that they, nobody ever liked
0: them. Ah. That's a fair, a fair struck against them. Isn't
1: yeah, it? yeah. And it's, but there's something about myself and my voice as a first person monologue that has a certain energy that it doesn't have when I write fiction. So, so it sort of picked me. And I think in theater at the time, again, it was a lucky time in the eighties and early nineties where not only in Buzz magazine, which I wrote at that time, our columns, we were writing them, we were reading them once a week on the air and, and Ruth Seymour. God bless her, um, asked me to continue and write that. So that was a real time of...
0: I hear they really miss her on KCRW.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's another 10 hour long podcast. But that really was an era. It was a more genteel era. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine words kind of like you're in a magazine, take your horseless carriage over to case your W and read it on the air for as many as like four to six minutes at a time? That's unheard of. Now it has to be two and a half minutes and you're reading off the page. Mm-hmm. And then it was a much more genteel time where you don't have to be blogging and twittering and tweeting and tumbling. And I mean, it were where people were paying much more attention to the and that was also the beginning of the rise of this american life right. and shows like that that really changed you know public radio in the last 15 years where mm. the story and the word was really valued mm. so it was kind of a golden time to come mm. up and you could do you could do both
0: i suppose there are some people a little bit older than me who feel like the rug has been pulled out from under them i don't feel that way so much but you know i think of despite the difference in our ages we both remember a time before the modern internet so yes. like that came around yes. but Your daughters, I don't think, do. They, they, what we call them digital natives, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're okay with everything because that's, this is the world they've been born into, right?
1: Right. Totally. And, and I think recently we, we found, um, at a yard sale, a manual typewriter and my 13 year old started typing on it. She couldn't believe just the experience of having a piece of paper go through that had no other windows that were opening right. into other media was extraordinary. And the clacking of the keys and the specificity of that was kind of amazing to her. Right. But yeah, they do live in a very different time where there are a lot of characters and songs and stories that they share. Um, it's not, I, I'm not going to say that it's worse than our time, it, but it, it. you're right, it's totally different, mm. totally mm. different. But they still love books, you know, after the Harry Potter era, they they still are book readers, ah, and the John Green books, they love them.
0: Right, There's, <laughs> it's, they partake of everything now, because yes. there is everything, and so it's sort of, to them, it's like, why not? It, it's it's really, really a cliche for somebody to say, well, you know, I guess it's your, your, your kids teaching you at a certain point, but you do learn something uh, from the way they interact with the kind of modern environment, don't you?
1: You do. And I mean, my my God, I want to kill myself every time, which is every day. They want to show the latest YouTube video that they think is really funny. But (laughs) some of them actually are really funny. I mean, there was one like college humor and it was about fonts. It was a font battle Mm. of fonts battling each other Mm. like Helvetica and Ariel Black and Latin wine. (laughs) And it was like, I go, that's darn clever. So, and they can see, you know, Saturday night live videos. And so in a way they have a a cultural memory that's a little bit longer Mm. because SpongeBob and the, Simpsons actually pulls from a lot of hilarious cultural references that we have. Mm. So they really, you're right, it's sort of a banquet of everything. Mm. But I like to be able to teach them stuff too. Like we're mm. talking about Douglas Coupland, Generation
0: X. The 28-year-olds should have that handed to them. That'll be their, uh, their high school graduation gift. Generation, copies of Generation X. Yeah, just Here so you go. So they
1: can know, you know what, it's been written about before, and here's great things that before blogging, because some blogging is not that creative and not that good, mm-hmm. and, and so the voice of a, an essayist, there's people have been writing Fran Lebowitz, Coupland, mm-hmm. but people have been writing really beautifully turned essays, mm-hmm. and they can look back at that and learn some craft. So I think we can just reintroduce the classics that they may not
0: see on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Now, I know we've talked a lot about you on the cover of the first book, but what, what do you now, who has written this book, the new one, The Mad Woman and the Volvo, yeah. what do you, what would you say to the Sandra Singlow of Depth Takes a Holiday? If you could talk to her, if you could impart some message to her, what would you say or ask or what have you to yourself in the mid-90s? <laughs>
1: <laughs> what would I say now in the mid-90s? I would say do exactly what you're doing. Ah, uh, People. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, you just you know, Oprah says, "I knew I did what I did at the time, knowing what I did." Um, I think that I I don't have any regret. I mean, I've had my life has been pretty much a mess. Even Mm -hmm. saying the F word on KCRW, in the end, it wasn't the worst thing. It was the worst thing that could happen, but then other worst things happened.
0: pretty good publicity, though, ultimately, right?
1: It was. It was in a weird way. So I guess all I can say is is that some of the most horrific mistakes and and just the deepest humiliations have been actually the stuff of which stories are eventually made. Mm -hmm. If you can walk away from that train crash uh, on two legs or at least one leg, it's all, you know, fodder for an interesting journey. Mm-hmm. And sort of as you get older, if you survived, it's kind of like, you know, like Cher was kind of like popular, then she was a laughing stock, and then sort of blah. Oh, there goes Cher. It's like Bob Dole. Oh.
0: <laughs> stick around long enough. Just-
1: <laughs> well, yeah, to stick around long enough. So yeah. I think it's always kind of to do what is on your plate in the moment. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I guess I wouldn't have any, regrets because you don't know at that time. And, you know, I also was in a 20 year long relationship, which is blown up in my new book, but it's like, I don't regret that relationship. I got a lot of positive. So I think when you're thinking about marriage, it's kind of like, yes, I ended my marriage, but it was also a great marriage. And I don't think I would be half the person I am now if I didn't spend those 20 years with that man. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's some people in your life that are supposed to be in your life at that time and they're really valuable and you're grateful to them. But you know, after 20 years you've changed. I mean, it's kind of like I'm, I, I met my ex-husband when I was 26. You're a very different person at 46 than you are at 26 mm-hmm. and we live a long time. So um yeah. So, so I, so I think the, um the idea that a long-term marriage that lasts for 60 years, you know, John, Uh, Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman Uh, you know I mean that's wonderful but it's not necessarily the rule for everyone Mm.
0: Now, listeners can read all about this in the new book, and they can get it uh, at the Festival of Books, can they not, which is coming up?
1: They can. Even though the pub pub date is May 5th, I think on mm. April 12th, they, Norton is going to have copies available, so please come and get some. And you're doing what at the festival? I'm on a humor panel mm. that's moderated by M.G. Lord. Uh, it's going to be Saturday at 4.30. People could go online, and it's going to
0: be about humor writing, and we expect to have much fun. Mm. I've been sitting here in Pasadena speaking to Sandra tsing who's the author of The Mad Woman and the Volvo, which you can get at the Festival of Books or you can buy. Pre-order on Amazon, do it now, why not? Also the author of books like Depth Takes a Holiday, Aliens in America, If You lived Here You'd Be Home By Now, A Year in Van Nuys, Mother on Fire, host of the radio show The Lowdown on Science, and so on. Sandra, thanks so much. Thank you, Colin. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. You can keep up with me at colinmarshall.org or with the LARB, and they're doing a lot these days at lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks.